The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 12. We'll read down through verse 17. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you. That you might hear it and be transformed by it. So please give it your full attention as it's read to you this afternoon. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated and please pray with me. Our great God and Father, we come before you again today and we thank you for your word. It truly is a light unto our feet. We pray that you would send it forth with power by your Holy Spirit to change each and every one of us in the inner man. Lord, we pray that we would not depart from here the same people that came in. We pray that you would work amongst us for your glory, that we would not be a people who have ears but do not hear and eyes but do not see. Father, please, by your Spirit's work, overcome our spiritual deafness and blindness and transform us really at the center of who and what we are. We pray that you would do this. We pray for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. In our Savior's name, amen. Well, I believe, uh, I forgot to check the bulletin before I came up, but I believe I told Carolyn that we would get through uh, verse 13 today, and uh, that's just simply not going to happen. We'll be simply looking at verse 12 uh, for this afternoon, because I think there's plenty of material there to consider. The Apostle Paul, in writing to one of, uh, it's hard to pick out the most difficult church that he dealt with, but it would probably be a toss-up between the Corinthian church 
and the Galatian church. So as he was writing to the Galatian church, even in the midst of the difficulties of the false teaching that they'd believed in and some of the false aspects of, well, what was called a gospel, but not really a gospel that they'd latched onto, it's, it's at the heart of his letter to the Galatians in the midst of all that was going on in their life that he gives kind of this, this driving apologetic or reason for why he's writing in, in some degrees what he's writing. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 4 that he is in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I think you might be able to take that phrase, Christ formed in you, and say that it could stand as a banner over the whole of the Christian life. What are we hoping uh, is accomplished in our uh, daily reading of God's word, in our weekly sitting under the preaching of God's word? Well, what we're hoping is that Christ is formed more fully in us. What are we hoping God does by his spirit as we, as we in faith give ourselves to prayer and give ourselves to the supper and give ourselves to the means of grace? What are we hoping he does? Well, we should be hoping that Christ is formed more fully in each and every one of us. That, that, that should consume the life of the Christian. If you want to talk about the direction of your Christian life and the content of your Christian life and the, the kind of the why of the Christian life, it could all be subsumed under that phrase, Christ being formed in you or you being changed, transformed more into the likeness and image of him. Now, if that's that big, that big theme that stands over all the Christian life, there's a couple of I'd say unintended consequences, but maybe we'll say unavoidable consequences. One of the unavoidable consequences, if that be true of the Christian life, is this. You and I have not arrived yet. And and, and that's just going to set the tone of our life. You have not arrived on the shores of Total conformity to Christ yet. Now, will you one day uh, on the shores of heaven land on Christ in you in ways and to degrees that you never imagined? Certainly. But that's not yet. Now we are in the process of being shaped and transformed by his spirit so that no one among us could say, I've arrived, I have it figured out, and therefore I have cause for boasting or judging those around me. You don't. There should be this accompanying humility and and this, what even lies at the heart of the Reformation, always reforming, I'm not there yet. There's also, as an unavoidable consequence, there's no minimum age requirement. And so I don't know if you've ever gone to these horrible places called like theme parks, but sometimes they have this, this line and you're not allowed to ride the ride until you at least embark on that. And so when you're young, you're kind of up on your toes and hope they don't see. Uh, there's no such age 
line when it comes to the pursuit of Christ being formed in you. What that means, young people, is it is never too early to follow Christ. In fact, if you, young person, could ask any older saint, do you wish you'd followed Christ sooner or later? What do you think the universal answer from the godly would be? Sooner. Oh, the wasted flower of youth that is spent on worldliness. Christ is worthy of our best in our young years. So there's no such thing as waiting until I'm older to pursue Christ. There's also, by, in the same degree, there's no like retirement age. So while we got on the kids here a second ago, we'll get on some of the older folks. You will never get to this point where you're like, you know what, after, I don't want to put an age on it, but after a certain age, you know what, I th- if, I, if I haven't figured it out by now, it ain't getting figured out, so I'm just going to stay right here. Like, no, 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 older person. You keep your foot on the gas pedal until you wind up in heaven. There's n- there, there is no end of pursuing Christ until you're actually in his presence. Then, I mean, you, you got him. He's yours. So you can, I guess you could say you could stop pursuing or I guess pursue way better at that point, however you want to phrase it. Uh, another unintended or unavoidable consequence is there's no hiatus. It's not like, you know what, I've got little kids at home. Life is crazy. I'm going to press pause, and then when they become teenagers, my life will be made. Everyone who's ever had teenagers understood that that was a joke. <clears throat> Those of us with little kids look longingly over the fence like, well, they could drive. Like, no, we can't go into that. There's no such thing as a hiatus. Or this season's really hard. I've got relational difficulties. I've got health problems. I've got, I've got all of these reasons. My career is up in the air. I have all these excuses as to why right now doesn't qualify. It does. There's no break in the pursuit of Christ. And lastly, and maybe the one that would subsume them all, we probably could have just said this one in the beginning and saved a little bit of time. There's no excuses for the man or woman in Christ to not pursue him wholeheartedly. It is what it means to be by your very name, Christian, little Christ or Christ follower. The sum of your life is spent in this. May Christ be formed in me, and therefore by being formed in me, more glorified in and through me in every area of my life. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether life is tough or whether life is less tough, whether anytime. That is to be the occupation of the Christian. A life that is being formed perpetually more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, with that being that big theme that we want to chase down, not just in this Sunday's message, but well, all the way through at least verse 17, we want to look at it this afternoon under two headings. We want to consider under two headings, and the first is this, the call to put on. The call to put on. If you notice verse 
12. We're going to take it in a little bit out of order. The, the command comes right up front, put on then, and we'll get to that in a second. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, I want to take the way that Paul addresses you and I before he gets to the command of what we should be doing because there's, there's, there's something foundational in how he addresses you as to that, that, that serves as the foundation for what he's about to then tell you to do with your life. And so how does he address the Christian listener? Well, first, we must be reminded that right before verse uh, 12 was verse 11. I know that's rocket science and top-level hermeneutics, but it's actually kind of helpful to know as we're reading our Bibles that when Paul wrote verse 12, the ink was still drying on verse 11. And while there's been a week uh, spanning when we heard verse 11 last, let's remind ourselves, look at that last. We'll go back up to verse uh, 10. You've put on the new self. You're being renewed into the image of your creator. Verse 11, Christ is all and in all. That's thrusting through this entire text. You as the listener, if you're in Christ this afternoon, you are a man or a woman who has put off by God's grace the old man in Adam and you have put on by God's grace the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That reality then has consequences summed up at the end of verse 11 where Christ is all in all, or as uh, I forgot to jot down his first name as a commentator by the last name of Lightfoot puts it, you are now men and women to whom Christ has become all in all. That's who you are as a Christian. To you, Christ has become everything when previously he was nothing to you. Now, nothing changed about him. What changed was was your relationship then to him. He is now all and in all. He is an uh, all-sufficient Savior and therefore an all-consuming Savior. And he's able to then fill up and consume the entire life of every man or woman or child that follows after him. Now, that's part of what it is to be a Christian. He develops that yet even further in the middle of verse 12. He calls, you know, listen to the titles that he lavishes upon you. And when you hear them, I I want you to hear them as they really are. They're they're true. It's not an exaggerated compliment. Now, I, I don't mean to tip my hand, but if I ever put the word doctor in front of your name, and you're not really a doctor... You might say, I don't understand why you would do that. I do it sometimes, right? And I I joke uh, with Mark Barnett all the time that it's a very honorary doctor when I call him Dr. Barnett. uh, Or I'll call you boss. Those are not true. It's a compliment. These are not like that. What Paul is about to tell you or call you or refer to you as, they're not exaggerations. They're not meant to 
to encourage us by way of like, well, maybe one day you'll go and get another degree. No, it's none of that. These are true of you today. Now look at how he refers to you. You are God's chosen ones. You could just stop right there and marinate on that truth that God, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians says, chose you in Christ. That for for counsels known only to him, he selected or chose or elected you to eternal life. That That should just stagger us that we are a people upon whom the electing purposes of God have settled, even though we do not, well, especially when we do not understand it. Now, this is obviously not the first time the Bible calls us God's elect. You could turn to passages like Titus 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is actually one of Paul's favorite ways to uh, refer to the church. Or you could, if you wanted a little fuller answer, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul gives a bit of an extended, uh, well, exposition on the calling that we have as, as God's elect people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 As much as I'd like to start back in verse 18, we'll start down in verse 26. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Now this is where he wins friends and influences people. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you are the elect of God. And if anyone were to ever question that and ask, why would God pick you? You might say, I don't fully know, but may I got some guesses? He didn't pick me because I was wise. He didn't pick me because I was of noble birth. He didn't pick me because I was powerful. In fact, quite the contrary. I was weak, foolish, and of no noble birth. Ignoble? Just no noble birth. And if anything, he, he elected because there would be no confusion as to what transformed my life. Maybe if I was wise or powerful or strong or, or I was really talented, people might think, you know what, man, he added Jesus and his life got a little bit better. Just a little bit. That's not the case. He loves to choose sin 
ruined sinners so that when they stand in glory, no one would be able to boast. No mouth would be open except to say, only Christ is worthy of boasting in. This is the one who in eternity past chose you. Do we even need to emphasize, what word do you use to describe that? Special, magnificent, flabbergasting? I mean, what word can wrap its arms around the reality? I mean, if you want to know how big of a reality, go find you a pagan and tell them, guess what, pagan? God chose me to be his own possession. They will think you are crazy. But is that not what we believe to be true? That me, for no no reason or, or effort of me, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I can't pay it back. But it is yours. It's yours not based on your deserving. It's yours not based on some like rent-to-buy payment plan where now that you're saved, you work down the debt. No, no, none of that. Your election is yours not based on you, but based on the sovereign, free, electing love of God. And no one can take that from you. That, those, that's how the, the, those are the ears you should have when you're hearing verse 12. You, the chosen of God. Now, he doesn't just stop there. He actually goes further and, and describes us as a holy people. You might look at that and say, I've taken some classes. I've listened to some sermons. I know my own life. The only way that he could tell me that I'm holy, he's got to be thinking positionally. He's got to be thinking they're forgiven, uh, they're washed, they're cleansed, they're holy in Christ. And in that regard, maybe by some really generous uh, expression, they're holy. Now, is it true that as a Christian, you, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Uh, yes, it's true. Is it true that you as a Christian, positionally, before God, no condemnation? Yeah, it's true. But I'm not convinced that that's his emphasis in this text. You as a Christian have been saved from sin. That old man, dead. That new Adam alive. You've had a fundamental break with sinning, and your face is now turned, if I could borrow from Bunyan's descriptions, away from the city of destruction, and it is set towards the celestial city. I almost forgot the name. You are a saint in that regard. You are a person who's had a break with sin, and your face is now set to Zion. Your whole life is lived that way. And in that calling to holiness, and that pursuit of holiness, I believe is what he is referring to here. Though they do not negate uh, the other sense at all. 
there's another, and I don't know which one of these we stagger the most over, the being chosen of God, the fact that he would call us uh, holy, or that last one, beloved, a people upon whom God has set his covenant love upon. You are not here today as a people upon whom God has, for some odd reason, decided that he would want to save and that there would be no uh, emotional uh, outpouring whatsoever. There's times where we do things just out of duty because we know, you know what, it's the right thing to do. It's like, I don't want to use any example because they would all fail. So that is not the way that God has saved you. God is not this austere, detached ruler of the universe who decides, you know what, it'd be a good thing to do, I'm going to do it. He set his love upon you. He loves you. You you who were once his enemy, while you were his enemy, he set his love upon you. So so for however other things in your life, however many other things of your life, might be uh, to some degree true of you today, this is true. God loves you more than you can fathom. You might say, I don't. I don't know what he loves about me. There's not a lot to choose from. He loves you for reasons found within himself. That's a really good thing, isn't it? If it was stuff that he found in me, I am not a buffet of things to love. There is nothing love-worthy, lovable, or meriting of love and affection in any one of us sin-ruined sinners, but... For reasons in and of himself, he loves you. That, that means his love for you, this is fantastic. This wasn't supposed to be where we're going, but it's where we're going. If he loved you for you, or he loved me for me, guess what I tend to do? Change. Guess what I tend to do? Mess up. Guess what you tend to do? Similar things. But because his love is founded not on our behavior or or who we are at any particular point in time, but is founded on him, his love doesn't change. It doesn't waver. He loves you steadfastly, the Bible says. The reason he can love you steadfastly and the same on a good day as what we deem a bad day is because it's not founded on our performances. It's founded on him. So I can know whether, again, even our categories are a little ridiculous, whether it be a good day or a bad day. I can know I am under the love of God as his son or you as his daughter because of who and what he is. Not my own performance, not my own sense of worth or deserving, but because he is who he is. He loves his people. Now, hear that. With uh, we'll hear what he's going to command here with with ears tuned to those three descriptors. I'm chosen by God, not for anything that I've done. 
I'm, I'm holy in that I've been brought out of the world and now set towards Zion. I, I am one of those upon whom his love has been set. And then if you could just take those three descriptors and just, I mean, if you could pick yourself up from the floor after hearing that that was rightly said about you, and then you were to stop and think. I know this is quite, um, this is like a long string of what ifs and stuff, but whatever. And then you thought, wow, I'm... That's not the first place I've read those three. He actually says that about, well, Israel. In the Old Testament, his his very covenant people. And now here I am, a Gentile, most of us. And who's he writing to? The Colossians. Guess what they were? Gentiles, most of them. And they're having the same language that was used of God's beloved people poured out and lavished on them. Who would ever have thought it? I mean, if if you were an informed citizen of Colossae, or you were an informed Nevadan, or whatever state you're from, you would have to marvel. How has this come to me? One untimely born. One not born under the nation of Israel grace of God extending to the nations. And then if you, could, if you could finally get your head wrapped around that, I'd question it, but if you could finally get your head wrapped around that, you would have to then say, but it's not the only place I've read that. He actually says all three of those about not just a group of people, but a someone. He says it of Christ. What am I doing? What are you doing? Bearing the same descriptors as Christ himself. A kingly title. You know, Christ is referred to as the chosen or the elect or the anointed of God. Christ is the holy one of God. Christ is truly the beloved. And now you who are uh, and have entered into inseparable union with that one bear those same descriptors. What a, what a benefit union. I'm mean, even saying it like that sounds so ridiculous. What a position God has raised a sin-ruined sinner from so that that would not be make-believe about them, but that would actually be true of them. And the uh, titles applied to Israel, and not just to Israel, but to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, could then be said of you who are in union with him. That should stagger us. Truly a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. You should be hearing that as who you are, and then in the reality of that, of who you are, then hear the imperatives that Paul gives. Now, our problem is usually we hear the imperatives and we think, if I can do those well enough, then I'll get to that reality. Paul puts it the other way around. You are a new creature, elect, holy, beloved. Now, 
live this kind of way. Out of the reality of who you are. Not in order to deserve the reality of who you hope to be. Now back up to the beginning of verse 12. And look at at what Paul puts. Put on then. I wish the then was a therefore because it would kind of give that logical sequencing a little bit more clearly. Put on then or therefore. So this logically flows from the, those gospel realities, those gospel indicatives, and then they flow seamlessly and consequentially into gospel or moral imperatives. And the word that he uses, put on, again, is a command. It is an imperative. And it's a, it's a clothing kind of word. It's used to, to put on a new uh, change of clothes. It's a clear call for Christians to live a changed and a changing life. If we could just take that, those gospel realities, what are true in you, and then uh, consider what Paul is saying by this call then to put on, and he'll get to the things that were to put on in a second. <clears throat> you and I, as his personal own possession. You were created to live a certain kind of way. You, you, were, you were raised in Christ to live a particular kind of life. You might say you'll need scriptural support to say something that big. Well, I do, thankfully I do. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, well, what's the for? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we would admire them. That we would consider them. No, walk in them. You're a new creature in Christ, and there's this design as to how you should live as that new creature. Good works. You might say, that's legalism. No, it's legalism if I choose works to get this. I've got it. Now, as that new creature, I live out of that life. I live a life that flows out of that reality. We are to then put these things on. Now, we'll get to, at the end, hopefully, if we have time, well, we'll make time for it, for the application. These are things that don't accidentally happen. There are, this would take intentionality, this would take work, this would take, as we would say growing up, this is going to take just some good old sweat. I wish I could say, you know what, put your Bible under your pillow, fall asleep, and, and you will grow in patience. You'll grow in meek. You will be meek. It's not the way it works. We need to be proactively pursuing these things, chasing down these things, striving after these things. Otherwise, why would Paul even mention uh, it is a command? Hey, listen, new creature in Christ, put this stuff on. It means we have to be an active church too. So secondly, the clothes to put on. First we looked at the call to put on. Now we're going to look at the clothes that are put on. And mirroring the two lists of five vices or sins that we looked at from verses uh, five and then eight, 
uh, where, where Paul in two different sections have five sins to be put off. Uh, he gives five, well, you could call them virtues to be then put on. Now, there, I do believe there is some, uh, I'm not sure how firm it is, but some allusion to this imagery that could stretch even all the way back into the garden with the putting off of things. Remember Adam and Eve uh, in their hiding from God and in their new sin, uh, state of sin and seeking to hide that sin emerge with, well, nothing more than fig leaves on. And there's a removing of that clothing, for lack of a better term, and then God providing them with new clothes. The Christian, similarly, has an entire way of living like those fig leaves that when they come to Christ are to be put off in a new set of clothes, as it were, to be born by sons and daughters of Zion. These are princely clothes. These are Clothes that are befitting of your status as a son or as a daughter of God. These are yours now by not just birthright, by, but by new birthright. These belong to you. This is part of your inheritance. This is part of who you are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and I, and I say that so that you would see them as what I hope, as I hope you see them, not as a burden. Birthrights and, and blessings and benefits are not usually seen as like burdens. I don't know how many of you, if your parents, and it might be a hard stretch for you to think about, but if your parents were super rich, I, I, I don't have this problem, but, and they left you a ton of money, would you be like, oh man, I just got all this cash. What a burden. No, you'd be like, yes. Going to do some things. Well, on a vastly greater degree, the Christian's birthright are these things that we're about to read, not just through verse 12, but all the way down through 17 at least. Don't view this as a burden. View this as a birthright of who and what you are. This was, if I could steal from Ephesians 2, what you were made for. This is what you're made for. To live like in the new birth that you have in Christ, far from a burden, a right. And when you, I mean, those of you who who are especially talented in a certain field, you know when you do that, you're doing the thing you were made to do. Well, Christian, you were made to do these things. And when you do them, you live out of the the way God wired you to be. What a blessing. Let's dig into them before we really run out of time. Uh, One more note, because we're going to be late anyways. Notice they all are horizontal in their plane. They all actually have to do with how then one of us relates to another one of us. And we might have expected it to be more vertical us to God when all of these virtues are the way that we treat one another, which would then, I think, more than indicate that our posture before God is reflected or seen in the way that we treat one another. Now that, you you might wish it was different, but it isn't. We might think like, man, me and God are tight. It's just me and all these other people around here that got problems. Well, 
according to the New Testament, if there's all these problems here, there's a problem here. Not, not that this is stellar, and it's okay for this to be a wreck. Like, no, they are inextricably tied to one another. And, and actually, all of them have to do with how I then treat other people. Let's dig into them. The first one, the first piece of clothing to be donned by the, the son or the daughter of the king. Compassionate hearts. Or a heart of compassion. Literally, the way that he puts it is to have bowels, not bowls, but bowels of compassion. Another way you could say it is like, to. this sounds grotesque now I say it out loud, to love someone from the guts. I say that is gross when you say it that way. But you, like, you know that feeling right there in the gut when you love your spouse or a child so much that just the, the very thought just stirs the inner person you're moved to move towards them that's a heart of compassion or guts of compassion however you want to think of it it really has to do with the seat of the emotion the place where our affections are seen as dwelling to be the the very center of who you are Christian, now is a new creature, an elect of God, a holy one, a beloved one. How do you now begin to see those around you? I see them not with judgmental eyes, not with demeaning, deriding eyes, not with disinterested eyes. I see them now with compassion as those I was made to serve as those I was made to not be repulsed by, but to be drawn towards. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of us that all of these should sound extremely familiar because if we're talking about Christ being formed in us, who would we think would be the greatest example of all of these things? Well, they would be nothing less than describing who and what the Savior Jesus Christ was like. So I, I just simply ask you, in the way that Christ has dealt with you, has he had a heart of compassion or has he been a hard master? Think of the way that he moved towards you in your sin. Not fled from you, but moved towards you. When you were vile and unlovely and unlovable, except for his love, when you, were, when you hated him, did he move to you with compassion? You have to say yes. There's no other. Our problem is we, we tend to think in our sin he's harsh, but he's really overflowing with compassion for others and not just compassion for the easy ones. Because I was not an easy, still not, an easy one. Are some people very easy to love? I think so. Are some people moderately difficult? Yeah, is there another category that we all know exists and we, we, we don't need hands raised? Especially like after Thanksgiving where we spent time with family, but anyway. 
are some people really hard to love? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A heart of compassion for them. From the guts. From who and what you are in the inner man. Why? That's how Christ loved you. That's who Christ is. And that's the one in whose image you are being shaped. What does it mean? Because it can be so kind of ethereal and, 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 and way out there to think, what does Christ's likeness even look like? Well, uh, Paul will tell you, a heart of compassion. Not a heart of judgmentalism. Not a heart always looking to measure, where am I at in comparison with that? Oh, I'm better. Oh, that's them, me, them, me. Like, no, that's not what the Savior does. That's not what you as a Christian ought to do. But we ought to see others in their fallenness, and he might even say especially in their fallenness, and say, there. An image bearer, if they're in the church, a brother or sister to serve. Not as some weird Messiah complex, like they need me to save them. Like, no, God gave me what I need to serve. And I want to go towards them. Secondly, the second piece of clothing donned by the Christian, and this will likely be our last one, and we didn't even make it halfway as far as I thought we would. Kindness. Kindness. Some translations will uh, translate it as goodness. It's the same idea, goodness or kindness. Uh, it has at its heart an insistence upon doing good to another, not based upon their favor or their deserving. You understand that? We speak of, of this idea of kindness or goodness. What we're speaking of is a is it not just a it is a deep seated uh, in that in that it is authentic it is not false or hypocritical but it is a deep seated commitment to do good to others without having to look at the ledger as to whether or not they deserve it or not. It's a moving to bless. Now it'll go into action when we consider meekness, probably next week. Um, but it is that, it's that intention, it's that direction in life, it's that bending of who and what you are towards an end, and that end is doing good to others. Not asking, what good can I receive from others? What can I get out of them? What do I, no, how can I be used as a tool in God's hand to bless those around me, without thought of repayment and without thought of what they deserve. Kindness. It's actually um, the, the, one of the, the primary marks of love that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is, among other things, kind. It doesn't keep tallies and repay on that. It moves with uh, both Action, intention, and we'll add one thing to it, affection. Sometimes we can do all the right kind of stuff, draw near with helping hands while the heart is far away. Not kindness. 
Kindness comes with a warm heart and ready hands to help. We've all been helped by someone where you were like, oh, you just have to do this, don't you? This is a duty. I'm a project. Oh, I'm that person. No one likes feeling like that. And more importantly, I don't want to jump in, that's not how Christ drew near to you. That is not the way that he was. So it's a primary mark of love, 1 Corinthians 13. It's also the result of the Spirit's work in your life. Galatians 5.22, we'll actually look at both of these texts uh, throughout the rest of these and into next week. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's, it's, it's one of the things the Spirit is actively working in the life of a believer. And you might say, I'm not naturally a kind person. I know, that's why you need the Spirit to work it out. Some people feel like they are naturally kind, and then when I talk to them, they assure me that it's hard to love people like me. But that's another, time for, another topic for another day. It doesn't grow native in a fallen heart. Kindness towards myself, now that flourishes. Kindness for another, man, do I need the Spirit to work. Derek Thomas said that uh, Tertullian, uh, someone very prominent in church history, said that it was during an early intense period of persecution by the pagans that the Christian church were referred to by the pagans Not as, I'm going to try to, I'm not going to try to butcher it. I will accidentally butcher it. Instead of a Christian, they were referred to as a a a Christian. The word for kindness. He said the pagans during a season in Tertullian's life called Christian, a little play off the word Christian and the word for kindness. They called them the kind people. The people who were marked by kindness. The pagans called them that. It wasn't like the thing they called each other that wasn't true, but they all wanted to pretend it was. The world saw and went, what is up with these kind people? They don't, they don't bless based on deserving. They don't bless based, based on what they can receive. They bless because of something that happened to them and they're, they're doing it to other people. In insistence, a dogged insistence on doing good to others. You might call it a benevolent disposition. And with this, we'll close. Christian, has Christ been kind to you? Just stop for a moment and reflect upon the few fleeting years of your life and you would have nothing but what seemed to be a ceaseless string of kindnesses that Christ has shown you, not based on what you deserved. Not based on him thinking that we could somehow pay him back. He is kind to you every day. The fact that you woke up today, kindness. The fact that you have your health to whatever degree it is today, kindness. The fact that we could worship in public without risk of being persecuted, that is an almost unfathomable kindness. That's the way he is always to us as people. What does it mean to be formed more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ? 
it means that because he's kind, I grow in kindness too. And we mentioned it was one of the fruits, uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, which means it is God's will that I and you grow in this. That means that you can storm the mercy seat and say, God, my heart, not very compassionate, not very kind, transform me. And he will not answer to that request, no. I don't really want Christ's likeness formed in you in, in the way of a compassionate heart and kindness. No, no, no. You can actually, with confidence, draw near and be like, you have said, do as you've said. You want, now be careful, it's a dangerous prayer. I'm just going to warn you right now. If you want a, a compassionate heart, he's going to be like, here's some tough ones. <laughs> you want to be kind? He's like, this, they'll drive you crazy. <laughs> But I'll work, and I'll change, and I'll shape you. Do not think him a cold-hearted father who, upon being asked by his son for bread, will be given a stone. You ask him for a compassionate heart and Christ-like kindness. He will faithfully work it. My only question for you to walk away with Are we asking him? Are we seeking to put these things on? Or are we hoping they happen accidentally? If you storm, if you ask, he will give. Maybe we aren't growing in these areas because we're not asking. Maybe maybe we don't prize them. Maybe we're, if you're sitting there, you're like, I don't know, that doesn't sound very manly. Christ was the most compassionate hearted, kind, manly man there is. So it's a mark of true biblical masculinity, but it should be found in all of God's children. It's found in Christ in whose image we're being shaped. Are you asking? Make it a point to, to not... Get up in the morning or go to bed at night without saying, Lord, a heart like yours, a heart, kindness like yours, more of Christ, less of me. Let's pray. Our Father, please shape these things in us. Oh, we rejoice in our position in Christ and we grieve that there is not more of him formed in us. We pray that you would work in us. Give us first a a longing to be these things. And then give us faithfulness in prayer and word to seek them. Oh, Spirit of God, we pray that you would work hearts of compassion and kindness in us. We confess we are not equipped for these things. And we need you to work. Do so for the glory of God of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.